0: bunch of us were on our residential retreat this last weekend thanks to all the of you who helped make that possible and our staff kim was our kitchen manager with mary mccann assisting and roger was our super volunteer and gail press who's not here tonight but is in the class was our manager and of course scott is one of our people on the retreat committee so valuable martha our registrar. We'll have another one over President's Weekend. Also, TCBC will be having a retreat that same week, right before that, uh, with Chaz DiCaprio. I think I forget how his last name goes. But anyway, uh, keep that in mind. Shelley will be sending out the information about the December intensive in a few days, as, long, as well as the uh, registration link for the year-end retreat between the 27th and the 31st. Of December so be on the lookout for that if you're on the email list that's the only way you can register because that's where the link will be I guess maybe the link will be on the website too for the year-end retreat so any comments about the meditation before I talk a little bit and then we'll break into small groups for the last 25 minutes but how about that practice and this really leads into the talk tonight because uh We've to the end, and of course we'll pick it up again in the winter as we talk about dependent origination. This teaching on dependent origination is really the Buddhist attempt to describe, to uh, analyze or model this experience that we have. You know, we have this experience of being a suffering human being, sometimes happy, sometimes suffering. But even when we're happy, we're trying to control or make that last, so there's even some discomfort, uneasiness there. So how to describe that in a way that lines up with this as being nature instead of this being self. And uh, this also relates to this point that I, I want to dig into tonight. You know, how is it that we can uh act or practice in a way that leads to freedom from karma. I mean, we live in this very clearly, right? seems so obvious, one of the nice things, that there are some things that are obvious, like cause and effect seems pretty obvious to all of us. We live in this lawful place. So given that we're so, in in a sense, embedded, caught in this (coughs) lawful, conditional, cause and effect, how is it that there's freedom? And so that's hopefully what we were experimenting with tonight, because there we were with the mind and body tumbling forward, you know, in this principled way, lawful way, one moment conditionally, conditioning the next moment, and then just to see, like, well, can there be that karmic process, cause and effect process, Without uh, anybody doing anything, because normally our normal relationship to this karmic process is to try to help it along, keep it out of trouble, move it in good directions, tweaking it here, resisting here, spacing out there. But this is a different kind of practice, so be interesting. I'm interested to hear how it was for you. Even if you didn't like it, that's okay. Yeah, hi. I, uh, I started... See that uh, as you were starting to know us, notice things Things the mind was doing, that you, uh, you know, the, the thing about this practice is we have to get that nimbleness of mind that can then notice the, the doing of the knowing. Because that, like, once we feel like, oh, I should notice the doing, then, in a sense, the ego gets established there, the sense of self gets established there, and it wants to do a good job, so it Gets hyper vigilant, so we need to notice that too. Like even the noticing of doing can be non-doing. It doesn't. We don't need to take it up as an activity that we're doing, even though initially it seems that way. Started labeling everything, and I couldn't keep up. You know. Mhm. Other reflections about how that was. Yeah, Patrice. Yeah. So that's that's a great reflection, like to be somewhat or very aware of intention and to notice the difference between intention with attachment, identification, like there's some some activity of the mind that is identifying with the attention, taking it personally, and moments when there's intention, even intention leading into action, but there isn't any of that activity of mind that's identifying with the action or with the intention leading to the action. And that's kind of what we're the practice is about, just to get interested, like, can we get up in the morning and live our life without the identification, with all of those intentions that that requires, to get up and brush our teeth and you know, do whatever we're going to do that day. And, you know, we know this, Because when we're really identified with the different intentions, we very much know this. I mean, at least in moments of self-reflection, we realize that that's tight, you know, that's heavy to be really identified. Like, for example, when we're really trying to be skillful, we know we're in a situation where we could be really unskillful. And so we're hyper-attentive to the different intentions and evaluating them as best we can and choosing carefully And there's a lot of, you know, it can be relatively obvious that we're identified with the intentions. And there are other times, maybe we tend not to notice these other times because they don't seem so dangerous, like that we could make big mistakes, where there's a lot of action, a lot of choices being made, a lot of things the mind is doing, but there's not much identification with that activity. And, you know, it feels different. It feels a lot lighter where the mind is unidentified. Yes, identified. Yeah, no, I wouldn't use it that way. The reason we're looking at doing isn't because doing is bad, because doing is neutral. But you have to look at the doing in order to notice whether there's a doer. And so there's doing but no doer. That's what we're looking at. Like when a doer arises, that's when we have to do that nimble move and see that that can be observed too. So there's actually not a doer as we a moment ago thought there was unconsciously, mostly. Right attitude. You know, as long as we're alive, we should be totally committed to doing. Because it's going to happen anyway. And any fear of doing, as long as we're alive, would be counterproductive. You know, putting like that's real rope burn. Life is moving on. There's going to be activity. There's going to be doing. But somehow there's part of the mind thinking, you know, doing's that good. Well, I'll go on. There's some you have something, Dave? Yeah, yeah. One of the advantages of working with stillness and your sitting posture is that it's just a skillful means to uh, make it more obvious when doing, and sometimes or often, a sense of a doer, doing, arises. You know, and then we get to see it, which is the whole point, is to keep seeing it, because when we see a sense of a doer, then there's the possibility of insight, which is, well, if I'm observing, if the mind is knowing the sense of doer, it weakens the delusion of a doer. It, it weakens that how being a doer is confusing when it's seen, when the doer is seen. Because it doesn't actually make sense to see the doer. We just assume it's the subject, you know. So what we're doing is we're The mind is observing the subject, the sense of a subject, over and over again. And it begins to see that it isn't what we imagine it is. You know, that it's just more doing. Being a subject, being the one who's doing something, is also an activity. That's what the mind's doing. It's creating the sense of being the doer. And that keeps being observed over and over again. And it weakens that whole tendency of the mind to it has to construct a center to activity. So from our discussions thus far, you know, one of the things probably we're, we're pretty clear about now is that there is, you know, as we look at our experience in some kind of direct way, it's really clear that we live in a process world, you know, our experience is a process And that this process is lawful, it's unfolding lawfully, we use the word a lot, it's conditional. So the way it is now is conditioning how it is right now, in the next moment. In one moment, each moment is conditioning the next moment. So this moment is like the way it is, because it's been conditioned by what was just before it. And we just see that all the time, how one thing's leading to another, you know, we exhale, we feel that exhalation, and the experience of breathing in is a direct, is coming directly, has been conditioned by the fact that the moment before we had just finished exhaling. Or if we're feeling fearful, you know, that moment of being fearful is directly conditioning whatever that next moment is like. Even if the next moment's an insight that, oh, it's just fear, but that insight can't happen that that previous moment wasn't the way that it was. So it doesn't mean that the following moment is exactly the same as the previous moment. It just means it's conditioned by it. That it can't be this without that previous moment coming in. And then the other thing, so we've learned about the lawfulness of this continuity, of this conditional nature, and in Buddhism at least, you know, as a, as a paradigm or something to stay open to, there's even this sense of continuity from one life to the next, what we call rebirth. And then the other insight, and we'll talk more about this next course with dependent origination, is, you know, understanding that although things are conditionally unfolding, this conditional unfolding is impersonal. Like, it doesn't require any center for it to be what it is. It's just... Causes and conditions interdependently, conditioning and sort of propelling this unfolding. Now, the, the piece that I wanted to bring up tonight, you can talk about it in your small groups. I'll talk for another 20 minutes or so and read some of the some things that hopefully will help illuminate this. The thing that's, that's yet to be talked about, and we'll dig in more in the winter too is, you know, this dilemma of free will, or, well, is it a closed system? Is it a deterministic system? In which case, what's the point of practice? You know? So, how is it that, given that things are unfolding, that it's a conditional unfolding, that it's an impersonal unfolding, how is it that things change? And uh, I ended last week, for those of you who were here, you remember I read from the Sutta where the Buddha is talking about, you know, salt crystal, putting it in a small cup of water, and it really affects the taste of that water. But if you put that same lump of salt in a big body of water, like Lake Superior, you know, it would have virtually no effect. So then another image the, the Buddha used in that same discourse it had to do with money. You know, like, uh, if you were living your life and all of a sudden you got penalized, you know, you got a ticket and you got to pay 150 bucks. or nowadays it can be quite expensive. Um, and, you know, but you have $100,000 in the bank, it's not a very big problem. But if you're already in debt and you're struggling just to make the minimum payments on your debt, and all of a sudden you have a $150 ticket, well, it can be a huge problem. That little thing can be a cause of your whole life imploding. Losing your home, losing your car. I mean, amazing things happen just because people, you know, they don't have the cash to kind of keep that juggling act of their life going. And so the one thing leads to another. So... This is, these are images the Buddha used to, to give us a sense. And then he also has this teaching, maybe I'll just read a few paragraphs from it. And this is also in that collection of suttas, the uh, karma, the study guide prepared by Ajahn uh, uh, Thanissaro that everybody got the link for. And this is number 29, if you want to track it down, <coughs> under the category of diversity and cessation. These four types of kama which is, of course, the same as the word karma. These four types of karma have been understood, realized, and made known by me. Which four? There is karma that is dark, with dark results. Karma that is bright, with bright results. Karma that is dark and bright, with dark and bright results. And karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright results, leading to the ending of karma. And what is karma that is dark with dark results? Well, you can probably guess. So the Buddha says there is the case where a certain person fabricates an injurious bodily fabrication, an injurious verbal fabrication, mental fabrication. She or he
1: re-arises,
0: right, in a not-so-good place. This is called karma that is dark with dark results. You know, and dark's actually a good word here instead of bad or evil. Dark in the sense that the mind is limited, it's not seen clearly, so its actions are injurious. They hurt because of the lack of perspective, the lack of clarity. And then he says, you know, what is bright? So it's just the opposite. There's a case where a certain person fabricates an uninjurious bodily, verbal, mental fabrication, right? So they're doing something with their body, with their mind, with their words that isn't hurting anybody. And uh, so in their next life, they're going to come back as one of the ever-radiant devas or maybe human realm. This is called the karma that is bright with bright results. So pleasant results in that case, just like you get unpleasant results if you have dark karma with dark results. And then what is karma that is bright, dark and bright, with dark and bright results? Well, that's like more the human realm. That's defined where there's a mixture of good and and not so good results, right? And that's mostly how most of us experience our life, is sometimes it's kind of nice, and sometimes it's not nice at all. And that sort of is the definition of this realm of existence. Now, here's the interesting part that I wanted to get to. And what is karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright results? Leading to the ending of karma. The intention right there to abandon this karma, this karma that is dark with dark results, this karma that is bright with bright results, this karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright results, this is called karma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright results leading to the ending of karma. Now, nobody should feel obliged to cultivate this kind of karma. You know, normally we, we hear this and we say, well, I want to cultivate bright karma with bright results, you know, and be one of those ever-radiant devas, devas that just has, you know, an ephemeral body and lots of pleasant experience for a really long time. That's really nice. But, you know, maybe we've done that a lot and maybe we somehow in our bones know that we've had a lot of pleasant experience for a long time and we're still not satisfied. That we might be interested in this, at least curious about what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about neither bright nor dark karma leading to neither bright nor dark results. And he says, well, what is that karma? So what did he say? He says, that's the action my thoughts, words, and actions, that's not about creating dark karma and not about creating bright karma and not about creating dark or bright karma. So when you do that, then you're creating neither dark nor bright karma, leading to neither bright nor dark results. So that's sort of what we were trying to do in the sit tonight. You know, we were sitting and awake, non-distracted, but we weren't trying to create bright karma. We weren't trying to create... Dark karma, we're trying to create neither, I mean, bright and dark karma, a mixture. We are trying to not do those three karmas. Not do the mixed, not do the bright, not do the negative karma. And so that's the essence of Dharma practice. It begins by learning how to create really bright karma. How to balance the mind, create really beautiful states of mind develop harmonious relationships in the world, take care of our body in a in a really good way, be generous, and, you know, create beautiful beauty around us as, as much as we can, you know, in our circumstances. And then when we get as good at doing that, creating bright karma, setting bright karma in motion as we possibly can, then at some point, if we're lucky, at just the right time, we find some teaching that is suggesting to notice the limitations of even bright karma. Like, it's a burden to have to keep creating bright karma. Even that is a burden. As much as it's so much nicer than, you know, unfortunately or mistakenly creating dark karma, karma that has uh, unpleasant results, So, going back to that image, you know, taking a salt crystal and you put it in a cup of water, it makes a lot of sense that, that, that factor, that arising is going to make a big, have a big impact on my mind, because my mind's relatively small. So when that thing arises in my life, somebody insults me, it's going to have a huge impact and I'm going to want to literally kill the person, which of course, is going to lead to a really negative result. Even if I don't get caught, the fact that I know that I killed somebody is a huge, huge result. And if my mind's a little bigger, you know, and somebody insults me, then I might just yell at the person, you know, and, and create uh, a bad relationship that maybe can reverberate for decades where we don't like each other for decades. And if we're family or if we live together or neighbors, that can really be painful for a long time or work together you know to have somebody you really hate that you are around for a long time it's not so nice you know and if our mind is more likely superior and somebody insults us you know it might not have much effect at all and so just you know in terms of karma that is neither dark nor bright nor uh or both dark and bright. That's like not even being Lake Superior, but something that has no boundaries whatsoever. You know, if we put salt in a body of water that has no boundaries, that is so big it's boundaryless, or what we would call right view, you know, a view that isn't established anywhere. So wrong view is any view whatsoever. Right view is any view that isn't established in any way. That's what right view is. It's not having a fixed view, a view with boundaries or any sort of fixed qualities. So when something bad arises, you know, pain in the knee, an insult, whatever it might be, some difficult experience arises for somebody, and in that moment, their mind doesn't have a fixed view then where does that unpleasant, unfortunate, difficult event, what does it bounce off of? It has to hit something for there to be a problem. But if there's nothing there to hit, there's no problem. So this is just, uh, I'm trying to uh, point to how to be skillful, like in this, the Buddha suggesting that we can create karma that is neither dark nor bright nor dark and bright. Little at another in another discourse he he describes that as the path. He says, and what is karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark dark nor bright result, leading to the ending of karma, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So it's just the noble eightfold path. So this path of practice is a way of being, a way of relating, a way of living, where we're not creating dark, bright, and dark and bright karma. We're not setting anything in motion. One image that I like, and you know, it's used at times, you know, living your day or having an interaction that no trace is left. It's like there's no reverberation. Like just a simple example, you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror. Now, almost always, when we go in the bathroom and look in the mirror, whatever our mind does at that moment, it almost always leaves a little reverberation. You know, whether we judge ourselves or we say, you're looking good, (laughs) you know, or whatever, whatever we do. But there's, almost always there's some something that's set in motion, some karma is set in motion and leaves a reverberation. And then it affects whatever's next. It keeps conditioning whatever comes next. So, you know, you can imagine going in, using the sink, perhaps looking up, looking at the mirror. But what would it be not to set anything in motion whatsoever, not to leave any trace? So when you back away and leave the room... There's nothing left over from that experience. Or same thing with an interaction. You have an interaction, but there's nothing left over from that interaction. It's really clean. You know, one of the things, and maybe Casey was pointing to this when he was saying about you know, really committing to the doing, you know, when we really give ourselves to the doing fully, are, there's not much space in the mind left to create a trace.
1: You know, if we're really
0: completely just in the brushing of the teeth, just in the interaction, just in the doing, there's no part of the mind to be second-guessing or judging or taking it personally or wondering if I should have done it differently. And this is like, you know, between now and uh, those of you who are going to take the winter course, independent origination, this would be a great practice thing to, you know, daily life practice thing. And sitting too, like we did tonight. But to, you know, be a human being, which means there's always going to be doing. Breathing is doing, thinking is doing, knowing is doing, moving is doing, everything is doing. So to be the doing, but no trace. So each moment of doing is complete, and nothing extra is added around that doing. It's just the doing and doing and the doing. Nature. You know, in the same way that, you know, we, um, you know, appreciate that uh, cleanness and completeness of nature, you know, how it does things completely, doesn't hold back, doesn't hesitate, doesn't have doubt. You know, just the different expressions of nature, more simple nature, nature that's not as complicated as our human mind. So this leads us, you know, to this understanding that there is karma, that there is cause and effect, that it doesn't belong to anybody, it doesn't land anywhere, or isn't owned by somebody. Well, there's several things that I wanted to read tonight. But, uh, let's see, I have time maybe for one thing. I'll just mention you can track this down if you're interested. Not sure where if it was in a magazine originally, but it's at uh at Access to Insight, that wonderful website um, with a lot of wonderful Dharma materials and including a lot of the suttas that have been translated by Ajahn Tanisaro. He has a short article called Samsara Divided by Zero. And uh I can't say I understand it completely, but he's basically talking about what I've been talking about and con- contrasting it with chaos theory, which I don't know too much about, but he sees some similarities. And this title, even the title of this article, Samsara, which are these tendencies to leave traces, right? We're always leading traces, then which are conditioning, setting emotion conditions for more births. We're always taking birth. So if I was really angry at somebody, then whatever is left over from that anger that's conditioning the next moment. So I've taken birth as the person who's angry at you, and then that anger and what's left over then conditions the next moment, and I take birth as somebody maybe who feels guilty for having been so angry at you earlier, or feels like I didn't actually get my punches in and I'd like to call you back up and give you a little bit more of my mind, or something like that. So we're always taking rebirth, and in a cosmological sense, you know, in a Buddhist sense... We take rebirth from life to life as well, because there's stuff that's been set in motion, traces that have been left, residual. We're not living cleanly. And so the idea is samsara divided by zero. How do you end these cycles, one thing leading on to the next? Well, you have to divide it by zero. You know, some of you remember your math, maybe. And what happens when you divide something by Zero.
1: What's, what's the, there's actually a
0: term for it. What is it, or is it irrational number? or No, just undefined. Yeah, but anyway, it confuses mathematicians. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is the thing: like when when we take the center out of this conditional process that nature is. Nature is this conditional process, and when we take away the projection of the self then it gets really interesting. And that's why he titles this, this article this way. I want to read, um, maybe I'll just take the last three minutes to read from um, Ayya Kema, this wonderful German, born in Germany at least, um, Buddhist nun who's no longer alive, uh, but uh, who's a real influence in Western Buddhism. And she has, she has a wonderful book called Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. you haven't seen it we used to have several copies in the library i'm not sure they're still around but this is her section called rebirth in the chapter of karma and rebirth rebirth is one of those subjects that often meets with fascination hope wishful thinking or total rejection one of the classic similes for rebirth is one about the candle the candle has burned down to its last little bit A new candle is lit from the old flame, and then the old candle goes down, and the new one is burning. There's evidently a new body of wax, but is it the same flame or a different flame? If you have the opinion poll, if you have an opinion poll, you find answers half for the same flame, half for a different flame. The truth is neither. What you have is a transference of energy. The heat has been transferred. Heat is energy. And this is what we have in rebirth. A transference of the heat of our passion for life. Our passionate desire for survival, which does not diminish until enlightenment. That's a really nice, I think, a nice description of the rebirthing process. As long as there is a passion for life, it's like the flame on the candle. The body may be falling apart, almost gone. You know, the, the life energy, the chi, the prana for that life and that body. It's almost gone. But the flame, the passion for life, has not diminished when we're dying, right? It obviously, I mean, it can be quite obvious at the time of death the not wanting to die, the wanting to continue on. And so that passion, that fire, starts another candle. She goes on and says, Once the Buddha was asked by the wanderer uh Bhatshara Gopta, and I think I mentioned the sutta last week or two weeks ago, Sir, what happens to the enlightened one after death? Where does he go? The Buddha said, Wanderer, make a fire from the sticks that are lying around here. So he did it, and he lit the fire. Then the Buddha said, Now throw more sticks on it. He did, and the Buddha asked, What's happening? He answered, Oh, the fire's going well. And the Buddha said, Now stop throwing sticks on it. And after a while the fire went out, and the Buddha said to him, What happened to the fire? The fire's gone out, sir. And the Buddha said, Well... Well, where did it go? Did it go forward, backward, right, left, up, down? And the wanderer said, no, it didn't. It just went out. And the Buddha said, that's right. That's exactly what happens to the, to the enlightened one after death. Because the difference between a normal person and enlightened one is, when an enlightened person's body dies, there's no passion for rebirth there. So there's no flame to light the next life, so to speak. And then Ayakama goes on, she says, There are no more sticks thrown onto the fire of passionate desire, of craving, of wanting to be. And the fire goes out. There is no kama being made by the enlightened one, so there is nothing to be reborn. Like a famous funny line by Trungpa Rinpoche, this controversial Tibetan teacher. Somebody asked him once, What gets reborn? And he said something like, Your neurotic tendencies are what are reborn. With us, in whom there is craving for survival, that is our passport to rebirth. The heat of the passion is the transference of energy. Sometimes the reverse side of the same passion arises. One doesn't want to live because life is too unpleasant. I want to live, or I don't want to live, is the same ego delusion. The desire for survival is our strongest craving. It's so strong that even on one's deathbed, there is rarely a gentle giving up and giving in. It is said the moment of death can be the most favorable moment for enlightenment because one has to give up one's ownership of the body. But most people don't want to let go. Since the body gives up anyway, they are forced to do so, but mostly under protest. If one gives up voluntarily, however, that can be a moment of awakening. While one is still living comfortably and everything seems to be going rather well, the foods are right, the digestion work, works, it isn't too hot or cold, the mosquitoes aren't biting, nobody's saying nasty words, at such times there is no great urgency to let go. Liberation doesn't seem to be the greatest priority then. But at death, it may be the one thing one can still do, namely let go. One more paragraph here. What is embedded in the mind through habitual thought and speech and action creates a karmic aggregate. What is reborn is the genetic blueprint and a karmic blueprint, totally impartial. The Buddha said that it is wrong to think that the one who makes the karma and the one who reads the consequences is the same person. Likewise, that the one who makes the karma and the one who reads the consequences is a different person. So the Buddha said both. Don't think it's the same person, and don't think it's a different person. But there is continuity. That one isn't the same person being reborn is quite clear, because the body, thoughts, and feelings have changed. Everything has changed from the moment of kama making to the moment of kama reaping. But that there is continuity between one who has made the kama and one who reaps it is also clear. Karma runs through our lives. It has our past actions embedded in it. But it doesn't mean that we can say, well, that's just my karma, and leave it at that. Of course, many things to bring up in your small groups tonight. Last week I mentioned about relating to this whole field, this whole practice of karma, karma, with generosity. Like, because it's not really us who are going to reap the results in any real way, because this sense, you know, we'll reap the results of this life, what arises in this life, but in the next, this will cease. I mean, we don't remember what was before. But out of generosity,
1: we know that whatever
0: set in motion are going to have results. Somebody, somebody will be receiving the fruits of our action both here and now, but later as well. So why not take care of that? I mean, it's actually easy to care, just like we care about what has a kind of come to our plate, the life we have now, the circumstances we have now. we can be really grateful and really um, beaten down and uh, overwhelmed at times by the negative, difficult things that are on our plate. So why wouldn't we want to be generous about how we live this life, what we set in motion? So you can talk about that, like how that sense of generosity is kind of arising for you. Another thing you might talk about is that image from putting a salt in a small cup, putting salt in a very vast body of water. At different times, as difficult experiences have arisen for you in your life, where it turned out not to be a problem, like, the mind could really handle that, and other times, something relatively small happens, and it's a huge deal, it has big implications for you, that could be something. And then again, the topic of rebirth, and, uh, rebirth without a sense of self, how to relate to this process without a sense of self, samsara divided by zero, and, Reflections on your sit about how to be in the moment, but setting emotion, nothing, neither good nor bad, neither a mixture of good or bad. Like what that moments of your life where you really felt that no trace, that was really clean, nothing left. We even say that you know colloquially sometimes that, that was really clean. I thought it was going to be difficult, but it's really clean. I feel like, no regrets. And that's a nice feeling. You know, so we, we already know this. We kind of appreciate that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.